This is a CJSR podcast. Volunteer powered. Listener supported. Campus and community. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. Radio. Radio and and podcast. podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I just was so excited. It just was so fun. It really felt like playing I spy in the forest and uh, hunting for treasure in a way because you never knew what you were going to find. Hi, my name is Melania Antoshko, and you're listening to That's Food. That's Food is a podcast from CGSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station, handmade with love by University of Alberta students, telling the backstory to food in Edmonton, one meal at a time. My parents immigrated to Canada from Poland, where mushroom foraging is a national pastime. I grew up listening to stories about mushroom picking, and on every walk we saw a mushroom, my parents would wonder if we can pick the mushroom, and more importantly, if it was edible. Now, I wanted to learn more about mushrooms so I can continue this mushroom picking tradition here in Canada. In today's episode, I spoke to the founder and CEO of Siri Solutions, Alex Villeneuve, on the business side of mushrooms, and Candace Cullum, the Red Deer Coordinator for the Alberta Mycological Society on Mushroom Foraging. Let's get into it! My name is Alex Villeneuve, and I'm the CEO and founder of Siri Solutions. I got into mushroom growing kind of by a series of um, experiences and, and interests, I guess, uh, since, since I was a kid. Uh, I was always really excited as a kid about uh, finding mushrooms in the forest. And I had this little field guide where I would run around and try to check off all of the mushrooms that I had found to uh, eventually um, find out that I, or see that I collected every mushroom in the field guide or, or seen every mushroom. Um, in high school, I started growing mushrooms as part of a culinary arts and biology project, oyster mushrooms and little mason jars. And um, yeah, from there, I, I applied what I knew about mushrooms and my early, very early cultivation experiences to, um, uh, to, to what I'm doing now at Siri Solutions, um, which, which actually started as, as two Ziploc bags in my college dorm room closet. Um, I saw the huge amount of craft brewers bring waste that comes from the beer brewing process and thought that we should be doing something better than uh, throwing it away or, or, or putting it in the compost. And um, yeah, decided to grow some mushrooms on it because I was, uh, since I have been excited about mushrooms since I was a kid. So how did you transition from the Ziploc bag into like the full scale production that is today? When I started with the Ziploc bag sized experiments in my dorm room, it really wasn't about starting a company and um, you know feeding the world at that point, I was just really excited to grow some local food off of some some underutilized grain. Um, I, I, I attended Nate uh, up in Edmonton to do my chef's apprenticeship before coming to Olds College, and um, so we were running pop-up restaurant events and one-time dinners and theme dinners and things like that. And I thought it'd be a really fun food beer pairing to to brew this beer, take the waste from it, grow mushrooms off of it, and then serve the mushrooms and beer um, together as part of the same dish. Uh, like you don't get much closer to a food beer pairing than that. Um, so that was the initial uh, thought behind growing the mushrooms. But um, with those Ziploc bags, I found that the mushroom grew a whole lot bigger. It tasted better. It was um, all around just a better mushroom than, than what we could get at the time at, at any of the markets. Um, so from there, I, I realized, well, maybe there's a maybe there's an opportunity to grow more than you know two Ziploc bags full of these uh, mushrooms and add some value to to waste and um, and really create a 
we create an industry within Alberta that, that supports local farmers and ranchers and chefs and restaurants um, while diverting waste from landfills. After those Ziploc style uh, experiments, uh, I had taken my results to some of the researchers over at the uh, Center for Innovation here. Um, and, I, and I said, well, you know, I, I grew these few mushrooms. I think there's, uh, I think there's an opportunity to grow a whole lot more. Um, and I think that's where the project would have ended at most colleges or institutions would be I'm growing mushrooms in my dorm room. And I think I'd like to start a company. Um, but they were, they were hugely supportive. They introduced me to uh, folks at the National Research Council and at Alberta Innovates. Uh, they provided me with a, a, a small warehouse bay, which uh, I was able to experiment in. And uh, yeah, I scaled it up from those, from those Ziploc bags through, I guess it was three pretty distinct phases of development uh, supported with uh, prize money and with uh, grant funding, research grant funding, and um, my own investment. Um, just to prove the feasibility of it kind of at a small scale in marijuana grow tents and then uh, up to shipping containers and then um, what we have now, which is custom processing equipment and partners uh, with artificial intelligence and uh, automation companies. Um, but yeah, it was able to take it uh, from those zip box to to do what we have today with with the support of um, public research funding, uh, prize money, my own investment, and and the support, the tremendous support of uh, of, of a few mentors and and Olds College. That's really cool. And so, how how does the mushroom growing process look like in your facilities? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, I guess most people at home have actually cultivated fungi on on a pretty small scale if you've made bread. Uh, red yeast is, uh, is a type of fungus and uh, works in a very similar way to how a mushroom grows. Um, I guess there's a few key differences. So uh, I'll use a bread making analogy. Um, you, you take your water and your uh, flour and you mix it together to create a, a bread dough that's not too wet and not too dry so the yeast can uh, thrive in there. Um, then it has to be a little bit warm and it has to have a little bit of a sometimes the recipe calls for a bit of sugar to get the yeast started. Um, so it's a very similar substrate process. The making the, the dough is, is, is analogous to making the mushroom substrate, so. Editing Melania here. So if you're a mushroom noob like me, you probably don't know what the culture is or a substrate. So I am here to sort things out a little bit. So a mushroom culture is a live mycelium of a particular mushroom species. So think of the mushroom seeds to a specific mushroom species. And then a substrate is a material that the mushroom mycelium can grow in and establish itself in. So it's usually wheat straw bedding with sawdust, hay, and other organic materials. Now back to the interview. In our farms, we use a mix of craft beer brewer's grain from local breweries, which is quite high in sugar and protein. We mix it with uh, cereal straws, so the stems of uh, cereal grains. Um, uh, and that gives, we mix them just like the bread, we do the moisture content, we make sure it's the right temperature, we make sure it has the right nutritional profile so that uh, the, the, the yeast can thrive, or the, the mushroom can thrive, and in the bread analogy, the yeast can thrive. Um, then we inoculate it with a, a specialized mushroom starter culture. So uh, that's very similar to uh, tearing open your uh, fifes or whatever it is, yeast package and, and throwing it in. Um, so depending on the type of mushroom that we want to grow, we can uh, essentially just add a different type of starter culture. So um, if you were wanted to make a sourdough, they sell little packets of sourdough starter cultures and you could add that and you get a sourdough and 
It's very similar with mushrooms where we can add a king oyster mushroom spawn and we'll get king oyster mushrooms with on the same substrate. Um, and if we want to grow a gold oyster or a shiitake, it's all a very, very similar uh, substrate, but a very different uh, starter culture. Um, once the starter culture is mixed in, then we package it into perforated plastic tubing, um, and then we hang it in an environmental uh, microclimate container, which controls the um, temperature, the humidity, the carbon dioxide, the airflow, uh, and the lighting, uh, and that kind of takes it through its natural life cycle. So if you were to think about the bread analogy, again, that's the rising of the rising of the dough where you, you put it in an environment like in your proofing oven and you'd, uh, I guess, let that yeast um, multiply and produce CO2 to rise the bread. Um, it's a very similar process. Um, the whole incubation period takes about two weeks and then we go through in our climate containers about um, an, an additional two weeks of pinning and fruiting. So uh, our entire life cycle for the mushroom is about, it depends on the species a little bit, but about a month. Um, yeah, but it's a very similar process to making bread and um, yeah, very similar equipment. So does your mushroom operation look similar to other larger scale mushroom farms or is it different? Oh yeah, our mushroom farm is quite unique in the industry. Um, so so we, we focus exclusively on specialty mushrooms. Uh, so that's a specialty mushroom is essentially anything that's not a white button mushroom. Um, or an agaricus mushroom. Uh, so, so agaricus mushroom farms or those button mushroom farms are, uh, they, they focus on this like net, Dutch net pole system. So it's, a, it's sort of like growing in, in big shelves of mushrooms all in like flat beds. Um, so theirs are very, very different from what we do. Um, they continuously harvest and they use a mixture of uh, chicken manure and uh, straw. Uh, that's what their mushrooms like to grow on. Uh, our mushrooms like to grow on, uh, on, on essentially what to them feels like a tree. Um, so in the wild, they'd be digesting tree fibers and, and growing in decaying wood and, and sometimes living wood. Um, so, so we replicate what a, what a tree is like in our farm. So we have uh, these, these columns hanging from, um, hanging from the roof, uh, which are kind of a, a similar diameter to a tree so they can breathe all the way through. And, um, and, and I guess, has, have, have some of the similar fibers, so it's not pre-composted and there's no manure. Um, our, our system is 8.8 .8 times more efficient per square foot than a standard mushroom farm in the United States. Um, very similar to mushroom farms here in Canada. Um, that's just because we're, we're growing um, in, in very highly automated and, and regulated environments, so we don't need as much, as much space um, for substrate processing and we don't need as much space for fruiting either. That makes sense. And this brings me to my last question. So how does selling mushrooms commercially differ than selling fruit or vegetables? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, the main uh, differentiating factor in selling mushrooms is that the shelf life is like days. Um, it's an incredibly perishable product. Um, I guess unlike selling potatoes or carrots where there's longer term storage methods, you know, you can uh, humidify very large, you know, like bunkers essentially full of these products and onions as well uh, and save them for a full year. Um, there's, there's no way that you're doing that with mushrooms. So, so mushrooms are kind of like kind of exciting in that you have a new crop every single week um, and that you have to sell it all within, within just a few days. Um, I guess another, uh, another factor is that um, 
we're, you know, we grow 24, seven, 365. Uh, we're not really, we're not dependent on outdoor weather conditions or the growing season or uh, I guess any external factors. So uh, I guess unlike traditional soil farming where you'd, uh, you know, have very, very busy seasons in the, depending on the weather and depending on the harvest schedule, um, once a year, you know, we grow every single week. Uh, there's only like one day a week where we don't have mushrooms. <laughs> um, and that's when we rotate everything over. Yeah. I guess, yeah, the, the learning process is pretty fun too. Uh, you know, if we only got one crop a year, um, we'd still be, <laughs> we'd still be at phase one of our development. But uh, since we can get a crop every single week, we've been able to refine the process very, very quickly. So um, I, think for, I think for me, it's a, the, the perfect kind of agriculture so I guess mushrooms are always in season. Yeah, mushrooms are always always in well, cultivated mushrooms are always in season. I'm sure that your other interview will, will tell you all about the the seasonal uh, availability of outdoor or wild mushrooms. But uh, for what we do, there is no seasons. Um, there's some producers that do grow seasonally indoors, but um, since we're controlling our environments, there's uh, we're just replicating the perfect season every day. That's so nice. Those are all the questions I had for today. Thank you so much for sitting through and speaking to me. Um, and yeah, have a great day. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. If anybody's interested, there's um, more information on our website. And um, yeah, keep an eye out at uh, your local farmer's market for our mushrooms. After speaking with Alex, I wanted to learn more about mushrooms and how I can go and pick them out in the wild myself. So I called up Candace, the Red Deer Coordinator for the Alberta Mycological Society and expert forager to learn more about mushroom foraging here in Alberta. Let's go find out how we can pick up some mushrooms. My name's Candace Cullum. I am the Red Deer Regional Coordinator for the Alberta Mycological Society, which is quite the mouthful. What it really means is I help educate the public about edible and just fungi in general. How did you get into mushroom foraging? I grew up on a rural farm and I've always picked wild berries with my family and I just kind of started getting deeper into that. So I'd go on blueberry picking trips and while I was doing that one time, my young son started throwing mushrooms at me gently, just in kidding, but it just kind of struck me as something I a missed opportunity. So that and, and how much isn't understood about wild fungi in general, it kind of enticed me to, to type it into Google and it led me to the society. Mm -hmm. So do you have any tips for anyone interested in mushroom foraging? Uh, absolutely. There's some important things. The number one rule that I always start new beginners off is any doubt, throw it out. That's our number one rule, especially, you know, um, there are certain wild fungi that can cause you some bad reactions. Luckily in Alberta, we don't have too many that are lethal, although they do exist. So, you know, it's always when in doubt, throw it out. But um, beyond that, you can get yourself some good books. We have um, a local book called Mushrooms of Northwest uh, North America, and it's authored by one of our founding members, and it's uh, really great for a beginner. And there's a couple of little other pamphlets you can pick up too. So yeah. Do you have any tips on when to go mushroom foraging? Is it good to go now or do you have to wait? Uh, actually, morel season is starting right now. Mm -hmm.
By the time that you're listening to this, Morel and Burpa season will probably be over because it happens in the last two weeks of May. But don't worry, there are still lots of yummy mushrooms that you can pick up throughout the summer and fall. I found um, my first Burpa, which is called um, unofficially an early Morel. And I found it just last week. By Edmonton, they are picking morels now here and there. So it's just starting. Um, morels will go for probably two to three weeks, just depends how much rain and how hot it is. And then we'll move on into oyster season. And a lot of people know oyster mushrooms because you can buy those in the grocery store. What they don't know is that we have a prolific crop of wild oyster mushrooms that grow in our beaver dams here. I think pretty much across Alberta, we have beaver dams and sloughs. So just keep an eye out on those. And if you see a white fleshy mushroom that looks kind of like the one you see in the store, you know, join, join our Facebook group or join our society and maybe we can help you identify it. Mm. So in the beaver dams, wouldn't that be in the water or? Well, this year, our water levels are really low. Um, I won't lie, I do have hip waders in my vehicle for oyster mushroom season. I take the snow pants out and I put the hip waders in. Most people use them for fishing, but I use them for uh, mushroom picking. Uh, it just allows me to go into the slough a little bit. And, and you can use like an, a long branch to knock the cluster off because quite, quite often they're high up on the tree. So they grow on um, poplar trees or aspen trees, which we have a lot of in Alberta. So yeah, it's a, it's just a fun thing to keep an eye out for. Many people do hikes for other reasons like berry picking or, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have any, like spe not specific areas, but um, areas that you go to that have like specific like trees or uh, if they're high up on a hill at the bottom of a valley? Absolutely. Uh, each mushroom has its own terrain. So like, let's use morels and, and verpa, for example, that's what we're looking for right now. Um, they're kind of rule breakers in that we can give some vague description of where they grow, but they tend to do whatever they want. So, but we, we recommend, you know, like a low swampy area, they can be associated with different fruits um, like Saskatoon or raspberry. So every mushroom has a symbiotic partner. So they kind of grow in friendship with a plant and they exchange nutrients with the plants. They're kind of helping each other out. So if you can look for that plant that's symbiotic to the mushroom you're looking for, that can help you also be a key to, to know where to go. Um, as far as finding places in Alberta, because we do have a lot of private land and private grazing leases, it's really important to check what your regulations are for wild harvest. Um, Alberta Conservation Association has a great website that can point you to some a wild harvest areas, anywhere you can hunt like animals, you can also hunt mushrooms and berries and things like that tends to be how it works. Um, provincial parks, obviously, and uh, federal parks, there's just no harvesting anything of any kind. So hmm. yeah, I'll try to look into some areas near Edmonton that I could go look at. Do you have any that you recommend in the Edmonton region? Well, there's there's this one thing about us mushroom harvesters is we tend to be a little tight lipped about where exactly our patches are. Um, I do harvest a lot west of Caroline um, because I'm in the central uh, region. I do like to go into the foothills just west of here. So west of Sundry, uh, I do west of Rimby. But then, you know, there is areas that like um, around the Cooking Lake areas, there's quite a few conservation sites that also contain morels. So, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't get a start until you put your feet on the ground. So just 
just get out there is my recommendation. And if you find some fungi, you can join our Facebook group. Um, it does, we do help to the best of our ability um, through pictures to identify things for you if we think we can help. Uh, we may say we're not able to, but it, it's very important if you do want some help on an identification to harvest the entire mushroom. So don't cut it off or you know tear it to pieces. And then take note of where it's growing because that's another key that will help us identify it. So, you know, was it in dirt? Was it on the wood? That kind of thing. Yeah, I heard that the thing that people don't really want to share where they get mushrooms. Yeah, I, I gave some ideas, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, for, but I was just wondering, what kind of mushroom species can people find in Alberta? Okay, so we start off with morel and verpa and then oyster season which is actually a really good beginner mushroom because it doesn't, during oyster season, it doesn't actually have a current lookalike. So there is a lookalike, but it doesn't actually occur till late in the summer. So if you're picking oysters in the spring, you're pretty safe. Um, you wanna see them growing in shelves on hardwood. And then after oyster season comes red caps is the common name. And uh, there's quite a few red caps and some people do react, but they're very popular in Eastern European cultures. So they're very, they get dried and um, I find them slimy. So they're, I'm not a fan unless they're dried in a soup or something. And then we get some agaricus and the ones you find in the grocery store actually are an agaricus. So the little brown ones and the little white ones and the portobellos, those are all agaricus mushrooms. They've grown some in the dark. They've grown some in the light. They've let some get really big. So, you know, just be aware that there's certain gimmicks there in the grocery store. Um, we do get those growing wild here as well. They, they grow in the pastures. Um, I can't remember how many species there are. Some, I'd hate to even guess, but there's a lot of agarica species. So that is not a good beginner mushroom. Although it's something historically that our grandparents often picked when um, they needed to feed our large families. But nowadays it's considered something that's a little bit risky because there is non-edible variety. So, uh, and then I guess you just get into the summer mushrooms. I feel like I haven't had half of these mushrooms before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's so many more too. Those are just the summer ones. And then into the fall, we start to see, um, we don't get golden chanterelles, which is something lots of people know about. You sometimes rarely see those in like fancier grocery stores, uh, but we do get yellow foot chanterelles. So they're uh, in the same family, but they're uh, a little more fragile. They're still delicious, of course. You know, the more time you spend learning about mushrooms, the more these more obscure ones, like you said, you hadn't heard about before will, um, kind of you just start building one after the other so each year you tick one off kind of thing wow so how long has it taken you to find all of these mushrooms have you found all of them on your list or uh so far the ones we've talked about i have i definitely still have a mushroom basket list i call it because you know it applies <laughs> um i've been with the society for i think roughly 10 years i think this would probably be my 10th season with them so and it really depends on how much how passionate you are. Uh, mushrooms really grabbed my attention and I have a tattoo of mushrooms and I have mushrooms scattered about my house and I grow them in my kitchen. Um, recently, I've been making paper using mushrooms. Um, I, if you can think of a way to craft with them, I've either done it or I'd like to. 
Yes, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, I, I know about like vegan big leather mushroom bags and stuff. Very cool. Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, how much they influence the world that we're in and how little we understand about them. And that's something that always interests me is, you know, as humanity, we've kind of dissected a lot of life and taken a lot of the mystery out. Um, but mushrooms still have a lot of mysteries to unveil for us. I guess my last question is for a new forager, what should you bring with you? On our forays, we recommend, well, it's Alberta. So rose bushes are one of our constant companions when we're hiking. So long pants, long sleeves, um, ticks are something that we concern ourselves with. So we do, you know, long, again, the sleeves and a hat sometimes, um, a basket when you're picking mushrooms, wild mushrooms, you don't want to be crushing them and you don't want to be putting them in plastic because mushrooms need to breathe. They actually sweat and decompose quite fast when you put them into plastic. So um, baskets necessary. Some people carry a small knife because you do not want to add dirt to your basket, especially if you're picking morels. They're very intricate little cap and any dirt in your basket just spreads and you will be having crunchy dirt morels later if you do. So uh, just trim the bottom off as you go so you don't get any dirt in your basket. Let's see, bug spray is good. It depends on your level of wilderness skills to a certain extent. So maybe you want a GPS. Um, getting lost while mushroom hunting is a very, very high risk because you are looking at your feet and you're walking in tiny circles and you're, you're most likely in a forest. So it's quite easy to get turned around. So it's very important to keep your wits about you and um, maybe GPS if you're going to be out of cell service. Let's see. Um, a whistle isn't a bad idea. Uh, I do keep a first aid kit. I lead the forays. So I, I generally have some supplies that will cover the group as well. So um, one of the things I like to do with people when I'm going out is just talk about a warning system. So with people, um, if you hear two horn honks, for example, that could mean an alarm and everybody should come back to the vehicles. It's nice to just like you know, discuss those kinds of things as a just in case before you head out and always let somebody know where you're going and when you plan to be back so that if you do get turned around, you have some help coming that evening or as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are all really good tips that I would never have thought of. I'll just go into the wild. <laughs> and you don't have to go deep into the wild. The Alberta Conservation has sites that are, you know, in the middle of the prairie. So and while you're looking for mushrooms, you may be picking rose hips or Saskatoons or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. You don't only have to go pick mushrooms. No, it's, I always have kind of like a basket bucket combination going, never knowing what I might find. Yeah. And it never hurts to have a paper bag or two tucked in your pocket in case you find some mushrooms you don't know that you want to bring back because you would. You don't really want to interact mushrooms you don't know with all your ones you plan to eat just in case. So um, when you were starting picking mushrooms, how long did it take you to find the ones you were looking for? I luckily started actually at this exact same time of year. So I went out for morels. Um, my dad came with me because I was I didn't want to start this new weird hobby all by myself, go out into the woods with a whole bunch of strangers from Calgary. So he came with me and we actually found morels with the help of the society that very first outing. And I just 
was so excited. It just was so fun. It really felt like playing I spy in the forest and uh, hunting for treasure in a way because you never knew what you were going to find. And I enjoy being outside and moving at my own pace while I do so. So mushrooms are quite slow as you scan the ground. So I enjoyed that aspect as well. Wow. If this hasn't sold you. <laughs> I know. I feel like a salesman for mushrooms right now. <laughs> I hope to see a lot of new members that I can help. I'm really passionate about sharing the knowledge that the society has shared with me, which is why I invested time and energy back into them um, by, by volunteering and paying it forward to people who've never tried it before. So this has been very cool and I've learned so much and I can't wait to go picking. Maybe I'll go over the weekend. Good. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, if I lived in Edmonton, I would be going out this weekend. It's not quite time for us down here yet. We have a couple weeks to wait. So it's just something about the altitude along the Rocky mountains that keeps us a little colder. So mm. I'm patiently biding my time while I see all the bragging from Edmonton right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear the river Valley is a good place to go and keep your eye out for wild asparagus while you're down there. We have wild asparagus. Yes, yes. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're welcome. What's the difference between cremini, button, and portobello mushrooms? Nothing. They're all agaricus bisporus mushrooms. So why do they look and taste differently? They're all just different ages. As the mushroom mature, they lose some of their water content, making them darker and larger. So portobello is the oldest and, in my opinion, the most flavorful and delicious. There was a lot of good information shared in this interview, so don't worry, we will be sharing all the resources shared in the episode in the episode description and on our social media. You can follow us at That Spoon on Facebook and on Instagram, and save or screenshot the resources for easy access. And that's it for this episode of That's Food. Today's episode was produced by me, Melania Antoshko, with help from the That's Food team. Thank you to Alex and Candice for speaking with me. Our music is by Doug Hoyer, and you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on our website, thatsfood.transistor.fm. You can contact us at thatsfood at cgsr.com. We are That's Food on Facebook and on Instagram, and That's Food is produced at CGSR in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. But is it food? That's bad. Again, I'm not counting down. I'm not counting it down. Too much.